Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the FLA. Today's special guest is former Buffalo Bills safety Jeff Nixon. He was drafted out of the University of Richmond by the Buffalo Bills in the 1979 NFL Draft. In 1980, he was named Sports Illustrated's Defensive Player of the Month for September. After he retired from pro football, he worked as a sports analyst for WKBW-TV's AM Buffalo. He also had an internet radio show. Jeff has worked tirelessly to help retired players, whether it's fighting to get better benefits or informing players of their rights with benefits or their pension. Jeff is also a talented musician and provides music for the classes at the FLA, as well as for this podcast. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about two special aspects of the 1980 Buffalo Bills. The end of the 20-game domination that the Miami Dolphins had over the Buffalo Bills in the 1970s, and the top-ranked Bermuda Triangle defense. Now let's get to our interview with Jeff Nixon. Jeff, welcome to the Football Learning Academy. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. When did you start playing football? Yeah, I started uh, in a, a base league. My dad was in the Air Force, and we were stationed in Wiesbaden, Germany. And um, and I didn't really want to play sports. You know, I was a, a wiry little kid, and you know. But my dad said, "No, no, you're going to go." So me and my brother Dave, we uh, he put us on this, got us in this football team, and. It actually made me a running back and I was, I was like running scared. That's about the best way to describe it, you know? And, um, and it, you know, I, it kind of grew on me, you know, I, at first I, I didn't like the hitting and stuff, you know, I was, you know, I, I preferred other sports besides that. And, but uh, I guess in the long run, I made a pretty good choice. You think? <laughs> I, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. So were you active in any other sports while you were growing up? Yeah, yeah. My dad, he was, I tell you what, he was something. He pushed us all into sports. So, you know, I had uh, three other brothers, two sisters. He wanted us all in sport. And he was a very good uh, athlete in college, too. He was uh, a pitcher, a basketball player, um, you know, and so I got involved in baseball. Um, you know, I, I I ran track when I was in high school, Um and when I was, uh, you know, we, we, we got stationed back in the United States and, and I started playing baseball too. And, and, and I, I was a pretty good baseball player as a shortstop. And, you know, I was on the, you know, the all uh, Babe Ruth uh, all-star team. And, but as it, as it turns out, you know, football season comes first. So in my senior year in high school, I had a pretty good, um, you know, senior you're in football. So I got some scholarship offers and I took one from university of Richmond. Um, and even though I like uh, uh, football, I like basketball too. I was a pretty good guard and, you know, but I wasn't, I wasn't the best ball handler and, and I wasn't tall enough to be a good forward in the game. So, so I signed a letter of intent with university of Richmond 
But I, I went on another visit and I didn't realize this, but, you know, once you sign your letter of intent, you're pretty much, a, you know, said you're going to go to that school and play. So I went to Temple University. Now, Temple had the longest winning streak in the nation at that time. And they were pumping me up saying, we think you could be a starter your freshman year and everything, you know. So I signed what I thought was a letter of intent with them, too. And I was like, well, I can now choose, you know, I'll do what I want to choose. And my dad told me, um, he said, what, are you crazy? You can't do that. You, you made a commitment to Richmond. He said, you know, so it's interesting. I, I got back from the airport. My dad picked me up, didn't say much the whole ride home. We get back to the house and he opens the door and there's the head coach of the University of Richmond with a football in his hand. And he tosses it to me and I, I catch and he goes, hey, I hear you're playing for us. It was like, it blew my mind. The head coach came all the way to my house to, to, to do that. I was like, they, I guess they really want me, you know. But yeah, basically, I, I played uh, basketball, played baseball. Um, you know, those, I, I think those were, you know, things that helped me build my skills in football, too, to be honest with you. I, um, you know, hand eye coordination is important, especially if you're on defense, you know, when you're trying to intercept the pass or, you know, um, it was. Uh, I, I think I made the right decision to to, to stick with football, though, as it, as it goes. Uh, you were a consensus first team All American in college. Did you think you'd be drafted by an NFL team? Yeah, they were. By all accounts, people were saying, you know, you're probably a second or third rounder. I ended up going in the fourth round. Um, interesting story on that one too. So back in those days, they didn't they didn't bring all these players together for a combine and test you and do all that. They sent scouts to your school. So the Dallas Cowboys came, the Washington Redskins came, who I really, I, I, at that point, I wanted to play for the Redskins. And I, I, I'll tell you why in a minute, but, you know, and, and so, uh, so they tested me, but they tested me after we came back from spring break and we had just had our first practice. I was out of shape. Uh, we were on a grass field and the scout comes up to our head coach and says, you know, we'd like to time Jeff Nixon in the 40 yard dash. And they said, uh, you know, and I, I had my foot pants on and my, they said, well, you can take your shoulder pads off and your helmet, you know, and just run a 40 yard dash. We had a really bad grass field. I was dead tired after practice. I ran a 40 yard dash. I think I ran like a 4.7, something really, I mean, it was, you know, I should never should have run it. I should have said, let's go to the track the next day or something like that. We had a chart and track. And so um, so the, the the word got around the league that, well, he's a really good player. You know, I had 23 interceptions when I was in, in college. That's still seventh all-time in the history of, uh, you know, um, Division I um, A football. And so, you know, I just thought that, you know, that would alone, you know, put me up there in the draft pretty high. But then when the word got around that, oh, he's good, he's, you know, he gets, has good range, and but he doesn't have a lot of speed. And I was like, I, that is not true. That is a lie, <laughs> you know? And, and and it's because this one scout put it out there that, that I run like a, a 4.7. Well, when I came the very first, after I got drafted by the Bills, I came to the very first mini camp and they said, um, um, you know, we're going to run you in a 40-yard dash. We're going to test you at 225 pounds. See how many, you know, all the agility drills and all the weightlifting. You know, so I ran the fastest 40-yard dash time on the team that my rookie year. I ran a 4.4640. Four, 
Jerry Butler ran like a 4.47 there. They were, you know, I kept a, a Buffalo News article to prove this too, you know, because our head, my defense back coach said, we had no idea that he was that fast. We just didn't know. We thought that, you know, he was a good player. It's very instinctive, had good range, blah, blah, good tackling skills. But that put me down in the draft, you know, which means you lose. I lost probably $100,000 because of that, you know. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I, I um, you know, I, I still had to make the team, still had to show people that I was to be the, you know, the, their guy. So, what were your thoughts when you heard that you were drafted by Buffalo? Oh, I was depressed for a couple of days. <laughs> I'll tell you the story. So, anyway, I got drafted in, in uh, 1979. But as you know, the, um, the Buffalo had the blizzard of 77. And we all down in down in the south were watching this on TV. So when they asked me who would you like to play for, I said anybody but Buffalo Bills. And I just, you know, and of course I didn't want after I got drafted by Buffalo, I didn't want them to see the news that because this was in the news the next day, you know, drafted by a team, you 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 were with that team no matter what, you know. Yeah, but it all worked out. I live in Buffalo. I've lived here ever since I played. First played for the Bills, and I've probably lived here for the rest of my life. I love it. I love Western New York. I used to live up there. I got out of there in 76, right before the blizzard. So, uh, yeah. But I still still knew the six-foot snow drifts and, and all that. Yeah. <laughs> I finally bought a snowblower. You know, I for years I was out there shoveling snow. I finally, my wife said, you know what? You hurt your back. You're, you know, you're getting older. You're going to have a heart attack. I want to read about you in the newspaper. So I got my got my first snowblower. <laughs> it made life a lot easier for me, that's for sure. Absolutely. Talk to me about Chuck Knox as a head coach. Oh, Chuck. Yeah, we, the, the newspaper here called him Ground Chuck. Well, they I think he got that that moniker when he was in uh, out in L.A. You know, he liked to run the ball. You know, and he wanted to, he wanted to dominate teams. He was very he was just a very hard. Uh, football coach you know the first you know he, he would talk about smash mouth football smash mouth football you know you know being more physical than your opponent and, and it's, it, to this day that if you're more physical than your opponent you, you typically can win a game you know um so make sure i was you know doing what i had to do to, to, to stay on the right side of his <laughs> his wrath you know or, or the or the other side of his wrath because he could he could be pretty tough but he was a good coach. He was, he was, um, you know, he was so good at bringing in veteran players and, and kind of like, you know, I guess establishing a team that has a good mix of veterans and young players, but having that, having guys like Conrad Bilbour, Phil Villapiano, um, you know, just, those guys had, had had some success in their life when they were just, they were really, or in their football career and they, they brought a they brought an attitude to our team in 1980 and, and uh, actually 1979. You know they they were here, but uh, 1980. You know we finally finally you know had a had a good winning season. But um, Chuck was amazing. You know he had all these little sayings that you know. Yeah, I remember one time I was walking off the field and he was talking to uh, Curtis Brown, a running back that he had, and he told Curtis he said. Uh, Curtis, you know the difference between a champ and a chump? He said, you. <laughs> I just, I thought that was so, so, he just had a way of making players feel like he would die for you. 
You know, that's the kind of coach he was. And he, he had very, um, I remember one time we lost a game on the West Coast and we, we came back to New York and the next day, as we always did, we'd go into a meeting room and we'd, uh, the coach we didn't play good, we lost the game. And he was late getting to the meeting. And so we were all wondering what the rumbling going on. He finally comes in and everybody goes deathly silent because he had a black, big black cut on his cheek. And he was obviously in a fight, you know. And so we all were just like, whoa, what's going on here? And the first thing he said when he got to the mic is, uh, if you think I look bad, you should see the other three guys, you know. And uh, he just, we all started laughing and, that's the kind of guy who made us feel like you know he would go to he would go to battle with us and go to battle for us. Somebody probably said something about him as a coach or us as a team, and uh, he wasn't going to have any of it, you know. So um, it was it was sad to hear that he passed away a while back. You know, he, he's uh, you know he's still I think in the top ten winning percentage uh, coaches in in the, in the NFL in the history of the NFL. So he was never got to the big dance, never got into the Super Bowl. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of coaches out there that never made it to the playoffs, much less the Super Bowl, you know. So, um, so yeah, we, we miss him. He was a good guy. Talk to me about the opening of the 1980 season where the Bills finally beat the Dolphins after a 20-game losing streak. That was, uh, that was getting the 500-pound gorilla off our back. You know, I, let me step back a little bit. The year before, we had played Miami – the very first game of the year, it's 1979, and Tom Dempsey lined up to kick a field goal that would have won the game. Either it would have been 10 to 9, the final score. And, and we thought he made it. We all jumped up on the side. He just barely missed it to the left, and we were all just devastated. We, and then we lost the game down in Miami, the second one that year. So, you know, we set our sights on them the next year, and sure enough, we get them the very first game of the year, the home opener. And I was like, we got to beat these guys. This is, you know, this is, we can't let this continue. And we did, you know, we, we finally, as a team, we came together. There were a lot of, uh, you know, breaks in that game, a lot, a lot of turnovers. There was, I think we had six interceptions all together as a team, um, you know, and, and they had like five against Fergie, but we weren't going to give up. We just kept going and going and going. And, and then we finally did it. Um, you know, I, I, I had three interceptions in the game, but the one thing somebody told me, they said, well, Jeff, you set a record that game. You know, there's other players that have had three interceptions, but you also had a fumble recovery. So you had four takeaways in that game, which is a, you know, record for the Bills that still stands this day. So I, I still got something I can hang my hat on, you know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, I tell you what, it was so good to see the fans, you know, even though they came down on the field, 80, there was – on that for that game day, there were eighty, I think eighty-two, almost eighty-two thousand uh, fans, and I think half of them came on on the field. Um, as a matter of fact, the very next game when we played the Jets, it was the first time any NFL stadium had ever done this. They brought the Erie County Sheriffs in on horses to to make sure that no fans got on the field after the game. Um, and it was. Uh, you know, but to, to get the money off our back like that, we knew we were for real. We knew that we were going to be, be a team that to be contended with, you know, and and our confidence level went up. And we just, uh, you know, the very next week we played the Jets. I picked off a pass, took it for a touchdown, which came open. And I was like, 
you know, I should say that when I came down there, what inspired me is like when I'm coming down the tunnel to be introduced for the game, um, huge sign in the stands. It said, Nixon, we want three or four, five, and six. You know, I had, I had uh, one, two, three interceptions. In the first. They wanted four, five, and six in the next one. Uh, I didn't do that, but I did get one interception and I took it back for a touchdown. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, and then I noticed another uh, sign in the in the stadium. It said uh, Nixon for president, and I was like, oh, okay, there we go. That's now they're now they're over the top. Won the presidency that day, or at least locked up all the votes in Orchard Park. Uh, and he and he said uh, Richard Todd probably won't be voting for him. And they showed Richard Todd after he threw the interception, me walking off the field with his head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they. they um, yeah, it was, and that that got us on the track. That now, and now we won two, and then we won a third game in a row. Then we won our our fourth game. Then we went to San Diego. Um, you know, both San Diego and us were four zero. We were the only two undefeated teams in the NFL at that point. So whoever won that game was going to come out and be the only undefeated team in the NFL. Came out, we won that. Unfortunately for me, I tore my knee up pretty bad in that game. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, I, I ended up coming back playing later in the year, but I heard it again. So that and my downfall is that I just instead of getting the injury, like there were a lot of people like Phil Villapiano and Conrad Dover saying, Jeff, get a second opinion on your knee. Don't don't let it. And I didn't. back in those days, you couldn't. Based on the collective bargaining agreement, you couldn't go to another doctor. You had to be you had to get um, any surgeries done by the routine doctor. And so Dr. Weiss, who was a, the orthopedic surgeon for the Bills, did the surgery, tightened it a little bit too much. And so I, I had a little bit of a hitch in my step and it, and it slowed me down, you know. Um, but, hey, that's football, you know. It's uh, Everybody gets hurt at some point or another. You know, I, I, I wish I'd have had a chance to see what I could have done if I if I had played like a, you know, a 10-year career. I, I think I could have done all right. In college, I... I I'm still seventh all time in um, in the history of uh, NCAA Division One A football with 23 career interceptions. So I had 23 in in, uh, in four years. So I kind of expand that out. I think yeah, I might have been able to get to 82. I think uh, you know it wasn't to be. You know I um, you know and there's a lot of guys you never know. You know um, you know when an injury does to affect the you know the a career but in my case it did definitely cut me short <laughs> yeah i mean you're talking about your college career you were inducted into the university of richmond's athletic hall of fame uh what was it like getting that call yeah that was uh that was nice you know to what to be remembered by your the college that that you went to is 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 really humbling it's and it's, it's such an honor you know to be able to to um say that you were you know part of this you know this fraternity now of people that were great players great athletes not just in football but in all sports at Richmond you know and I um I'm, I'm hoping maybe someday they'll put me in the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting for that now <laughs> <laughs> they put Bruce Smith in it hey they can put me in it too <laughs> yeah why not <laughs> yeah, why not see what's interesting is when they do the the, the statewide Hall of Fame they take into consideration your NFL uh, career too. They look at that and they look at it as a whole package, you know, and I'd had a shorter career than obviously, and not a great career like Bruce Smith, but 
you know, I wonder if that maybe is hurting me, but I, you know, but I think I had a pretty good, uh, and it, you know, the problem too is when I played for Richmond, we were, we weren't a big school, you know, we weren't a powerhouse or anything, but we played powerhouse. We played Georgia twice in Georgia, almost beat them one year. Uh, we played West Virginia, you know, we played uh, uh, Cincinnati. We played some big schools, you know, because we were in Division One A football. You know, now they've gone to one uh, Division One Double A, you know, so they're playing much smaller schools, you know. Uh, but back in our day, you know, I can't say that I didn't, I wasn't up against really good competition, you know, and that. So I was hoping that maybe that would convince, you know, the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame to. To do something but they have they haven't come calling yet so and i'm not waiting for <laughs> <laughs> life i'm i'm retired by the way I, I finished working about a year ago and so now i'm living off my nfl pension there you go congratulations I, say, I wish i could say it was all the nfl pension it's not the greatest thing in the world but you know i've got my social security and i've got a state pension we're going to take a quick break then continue with our interview with jeff nixon if you like what you're hearing, consider pressing the donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as help retired players in need. If you're enjoying this interview, make sure you visit the FLA website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find more archival interviews such as Don Shula, Mercury Morris, Ken Riley, and Maxie Bond. We also have a variety of other interviews, such as Amy Trask, the first female CEO of an NFL franchise. We have broadcasting and sports writing legend Leslie Visser teaching a mini masterclass on interviewing. Nolan Harrison, a former player and current senior director at the NFL Players Association. Shannon Easton, the first female on-field official in NFL history, and many more. To get access to these interviews, classes on the history of the game, a blog, and much more, go to www.football-learning-academy.com. We're back to our interview with Jeff Nixon. I want to start talking about something that's very personal for both of us, and that's the the work that you've done for retired players. Uh, I know you spent a lot of time with NFL Retired Players United, as well as some other efforts. So let's start with the Retired Players United. What were your goals with that effort, and why was it so important that you you do all that effort? Well, you know, I, I had a personal interest because I wanted to see, I, I wanted to get a better pension. And, and, and a lot of players back in, and this goes back to like 2008 is when I got started on this whole thing. And a lot of players were complaining, they were, but nobody had a focus on, well, how do we get together? How do we do this? How do we you know, go to the league and, you know, express ourselves, what we want, what we think we deserve. Um, we built the game, you know, not me, but, you know, you know, years and years of players that have built the foundations of the NFL, you know, guys that, you know, they, they gave their blood, sweat and tears. They, you know, they, we played during a time when if you got concussed, they put your right game, you know, um, so there were a lot of guys that not only gave their blood, sweat, and tears, they gave their lives, basically. And, you know, and, and so I said, look, I, I, I'm pretty decent. I think I expressed myself well, particularly uh, in Richmond. So I started writing articles and posting them on, on what I called NFL Retired Players United. I just made it up. I was like, let me make up a blog and, and start getting out to people. Um, so some people started getting attention of that, uh, what I was doing, and 
you know, the collective bargaining agreement was going to be uh, up again in 2010. You know, so from 2008 to 2010, I started really intensifying my efforts and trying to get uh, players motivated. My, my first thing that I needed to do was get email addresses of the, and phone numbers of all these players. So the NFL Players Association had put a directory together that had emails of all the former players that they had that were part of the organization. I took that and I actually had my daughter take all those and put it in the and I, you know, so all together I had about, initially I had about three. And so I started sending those emails to players with a link to my blog. Things like NFL players need to fight harder for pensions or, you know, something to that effect that would grab their attention. And what, it, but the thing is, it's it's not enough just to bitch about something. You you have to say, what what can I do? What can you do to help with this? And so one of the things I realized right off the bat was we need our greatest players in the history of the NFL to speak on this. So I, so I started getting the Hall of Famers together. Uh, and, and Joe DeLomler, obviously a great Buffalo Bill and, and a, you know, personal friend of mine, I said, Joe, how about if I start writing articles but put them under your name? And you and we'll send them out to players, certain, certain ones of these, not all of them, but just certain ones where we're where we're asking other Hall of Famers to come together and start a campaign to get better pensions, uh, better health benefits, you know, uh, and just things that that we felt were uh, the players deserved. Not not just not that we wanted them, but we felt that they deserved. And, and the pensions were really quite low at that time, you know. And so, um, so we worked hard on it, you know, and and we were successful. That very first. Um, Collective bargain well in 2010 when they signed that collective bargaining agreement they gave us a substantial boost in their pensions you know and then but it wasn't enough it was you know a lot of guys um, you know were like you know that's good they they're, they're they're starting to come up but we need so for the next ten years I continued to write but I and I talked about things not just pension but I talked about the concussion lawsuits um, you know and I helped guys get signed up for that you know that was a major thing you know uh the nfl really didn't take notice until we started getting players you know to to sign on to lawsuits and so we that was a that was a key thing too um so i so i helped with different efforts to get guys signed and then we got once we hit about five thousand players you know the nfl realized how They, they said, look, we, we know we're going to lose this thing, so we'll settle with them. But we'll, you know, and I thought it was a pretty good settlement, to be honest with you. Not initially. What they had proposed initially was that, you know, they would give us a meager amount and we'd go on our way. Right now, the amount of money as a result of that compression lawsuit is $1.2 billion. Yeah, so we, you know, that's that's a pretty hefty price tag, you know. Um, you know, they were talking about the Dominion lawsuit being $787 million. Jeez, we, we beat that by far, you know. But it was but it was important that we did that because it, it, it put the NFL on notice and, they, and they, they changed a lot of the rules based on the things that we were telling them, you know. They, you know, no more slapping people on their head. Back when I was playing, you could... You know, Deacon Jones made a living out of smacking people in the head when he was rushing. You know, they were, um, 
you know, the crackback blocks, you know, uh, inner, you know, type of tackles with clotheslining players, um, you know, getting rid of the wedge in a, in a kickoff returns, um, just a lot of things, you know, that, that we force the NFL, I think, to make those changes, you know. Um, you know, they're, you know, they're, you know, and I feel I feel humbled by the fact that um, a lot of players really looked to me to to help guide them through a lot of this stuff. You know, and there there were a lot of guys that just didn't know what to do. You know, and so it, I wasn't just a blogger. I would they would send me emails back because I they they knew where to how to reach me through my blog, and I'd get thousands. I got literally thousands of emails from players over the years asking me, "What do I do? What do I do? What do I do?" And I would do my best to get some of them in the right direction. There's a, a slew of benefits that we do get. And and uh, and I think that a lot of the players just didn't know. They just did not know. And they they weren't even sure what benefits were available and 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 again how to fight for them. And so um you know that that's that was my contribution. I've retired since then. You know, I right about a year and a half ago I, I said that's it. I'm done I just it's very exhausting. It's very, you know, because you have to be right. If you're a writer, if you're, if you're a journalist, you have to be right almost 100% of the time. When you start making little errors and little things, you know, you lose credibility so fast. And there were a couple of times I made some mistakes and I had to go back and apologize, and, you know, and make sure that I set the record straight on certain things. And, 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 and I think the players respected the fact that even though I was very opinionated, most of my opinions were based in fact, you know, and I, and I, and I think that um, they appreciated that, you know, I got, when I finally retired, I got a bunch of guys saying that they appreciated the work that I did over the years. And they, you know, that's all I needed. If I knew that they cared about it, that's, that, that, that was all the reward I needed. I didn't get paid any money. You know, I just did this as a labor of love and, but I did get rewarded. You know, I, my, my pension went up too. <laughs> so, I, I had a personal investment in this whole thing and I, you know, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it was, uh, it's something I'll always remember. And, and I think the guys hopefully will, will remember what I tried to do for them too. Now, overall, I mean, you touched on this um, a little bit, but overall, do you think the players are reaching out when they need help, whether it's um, medical, whether it's, they need financial help to pay their bills uh, or do you think that they're worried about some sort of stigma by reaching out for help? Are you seeing more people doing that or are they still keeping it to themselves? I think you're seeing more and more guys realize that, hey, you know, if help is there, I'm going to get it. And the NFL, I, I got to give credit to the NFL, too. You know, they've, they've set up uh, suicide hotlines. They've, got, they've, they've done a lot to increase benefits for former players. There's a lot of places to go now too not only does the nfl help but the nfl benefit former players and so you know they they have just a slew of different things that players can avail themselves of and um and they do a pretty good job of getting that information out to players now too you know back in when i when i first started my blog and the nfl wasn't doing anything they weren't sending any information if anything they wanted you to they didn't want you to know that you could file a workers' compensation lawsuit. You know, I'm like, what? You know, they they just were totally quiet. Now they publish all this stuff. They this is the benefit. This is how you get it. 
because they, you know, because we shine the light on them. That's, that's, that's the thing. We shine the light on them. And, and so I think a lot of guys, you know, in the past, maybe they were, because when, when I, in my era and really even before my era, guys were told, hey, you shut up, you stick it out, you don't complain about injuries, you don't, you know, that was the mindset. That's changed. That has changed radically. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad it has because a lot of these guys just went, went on their way after they finished playing football and just, and it was extremely devastating, especially the guys had bills after the, after, you know, getting destroyed by the NFL. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it, it, there was a lot of sad stories. And they, and, and that was another thing that we did when, when we were doing the blogging. I, I remember I wrote an article about Conrad Dober and, um, you know, and Conrad, you know, he had a, had a reputation as a dirty player, you know, but a lot of pe people were dirty to him too, you know, because that was, you know, and he, he had like four knee replacements. Two of them went really bad. He had MRSA uh, infection with one of them. It was, I mean, it was pretty bad, you know, and, and um, you know, and, and so I would highlight guys like that and show you know, the, the injuries they sustained and what, what has happened to them. And, you know, so, yeah, we wanted to, we, we needed some sob stories to get the, and, and, and a lot of guys didn't want to do that. They didn't want to, you know, you know, because that the mentality was you don't complain. That's not what, you know, that's not what men do. That's not what football. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're, you know, right that, you know, now you've got another CBA coming up. Um, what do you think still needs to be done, especially for the older players that can be included in that next CBA? Well, one of the things they, they did um, in the in the current CBA um, that was signed in 2020 is they had an escalator put in there, a cost of living increase, not 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 uh, exactly a cola, but what they said is that if NFL revenues between 2025 go up 4% or more, more players will get $50 per credited season added on to their existing pension. So for a player like myself, six years, that's 100, 200, that's $300 more a month I would get. And, and that would be in, in the middle of the Usually they, they wait to the very end of a collecting bargaining before they uh, raise benefits. But, you know, this was something we had been talking about for years with the NFL is, you know, let's, let's put a cola, some type of escalator in there. You guys are doing well. You're making lots of money. You're, you know, right now they're uh, estimating um, twelve billion for um, um, for the uh, revenue that each team will will uh, and that doesn't even include the cost or not the cost, but the the valuation of the, the actual team that they own. Within those valuations have been going up dramatically. I mean, even the you know, who would have thought that the Bills would have gotten $1.5 billion for the sale of the team? I mean, they before before the sale, they were estimating them at about $800 million, you know. So, so, so it's interesting um, that they, they've done that. Now, as far as what, what else can they do? 
Okay. Um, it'd be nice if they could do a little bit more under the under some of the medical care that uh, that they do for the current players. Now, players in the NFL now, they get five years of free medical benefits after they retire. None of us ever got that, and none of us ever will. You know, but national um, hospital network that will provide some benefits to former players, so that's in there too. Uh, not a lot of not a lot of stuff, but um, you know, right now I'll be honest with you, they don't have to do anything else. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they they if you look at um, unions throughout the United States, what union has ever uh, outside of the sports leagues, what union has ever been able to go in and get the owners or the the, the executives uh, to give pension increases to former employees. None, none. We're going to be done in the NFL. You know, we've got a very strong union. The the NFL Players Association, they kind of stepped up their game, you know, but we had to shame them too because we didn't think that they were doing enough for former players. So that was one of my goals too was, you know, when Gene Upshaw was in there, he was an easy target. He was just, I, it was almost like corrupt. It was it was really sad what was going on under his leadership. Um, and he said on numerous occasions, look, you guys think you can get these the uh, pension increase? It's not. I'll say that. You know, we're like, why? What What is what is wrong with you? You know, and so. You know, he ended up passing away, and and then um, and Demora Smith came in, and Demora Smith recognized that he's not good. You know, he needs the support of former players too. He realized that if he can get the former players and the active players to to come together against the owners in negotiations over a CBA, that he would be in a much stronger position. Um, and in doing so, he would have to accept things that we were asking for former players. And he did that. He did. You know, not not in the first one in 2010, he went he went a little ways up, but not enough to satisfy a lot of guys. So we've kept fighting and fighting. And then in, two, in 2020, we finally got a, a pretty significant boost in our in our pensions and some other benefits. They even set up a health re- reimbursement account for anybody that was under age 65. So uh, at the time, I was lucky. I was under age 65 by about a half a year. So I got fifty thousand dollars in a health reimbursement account set up for me. And so what, any items that I go out and I try to pay for medical wise or whatever, if it's not covered by insurance, I I just submit a claim to them, to the um, health reimbursement account. They would pay that, you know, so that, you know, that's pretty significant, I thought, you know, I mean, to get a drop and and they did that for thousands of players, you know, my birthday is on like April 4th. Well, the cutoff was April 1st. So this guy missed getting a $50,000 lump sum helping me by three or four days. You know, I suppose they got to draw a line somewhere, but I just felt bad for the guys that would like to have birthdays right after that and turn, you know, 66 before that date, you know, and I, yeah, so, hey, it is what it is, but, you know, they're, you know, there's still guys asking me if, if I'll get involved in the next one, the next go around, you know, for, and they'll probably start doing some negotiating in 2028, you know, and then getting real serious in 2029 and then 2030, it's going to be, you know, time to 
to to do some major negotiating. But uh, I don't know. I I'll, I'll wait till that that you know that. I just hope I'm here when that day comes. <laughs> I still want to be kicking. I'm, I work out three times a week. I I eat well. I'm back down to my plane weight. I weighed 225 about two years ago. I'm down to 180 right now. Wow. Extremely healthy. Um, my, my mind is active. I'm, I still play guitar. I, I'm, you know, uh, unfortunately, my wife, her, her health is not very good. She's uh, She's got COPD. And, you know, so a lot of a lot of stuff I do is centered around her and taking care of her and making sure she's she's comfortable. But um, you know, but I still I'm still active with our Buffalo Bills alumni here locally. You know, we we have a lot of events. We have big golf, you know, so and we we're still raising a lot of money for different uh, charitable organizations here in the Buffalo and Western New York region. We I think we've raised about two and a half million dollars over the you know past twenty years or so. So. And we like to have fun when we raise money. Golf tournaments, you know. I, I set up a thing called the ta Tailgate to Tackle Alzheimer's, where we all come together and we watch Bill's foot local bar or tavern, and we raise money for the uh, Alzheimer's Association, which is near and dear to me because, you know, there a lot of players have developed Alzheimer's. We're actually uh, four times greater than the general population to develop Alzheimer's, obviously from numerous what what they call concussive blows you know you know so um but anyway yeah it's uh i like to say active yeah yeah i mean i remember seeing you back in april and uh you were definitely looking good back then so Thanks. and um yeah i mean and you know with your wife too send my regards to her um you know i know she's she's going through a lot right now so i wish her all the best and uh to be able to get through this great thanks ken i appreciate it i'll let her know now you had just mentioned something a few seconds ago about playing guitar so not sure if everybody knows about this about you being a very talented musician as well as providing the music for the football <laughs> learning academy so when did you start playing the guitar oh I, I have been wanting a guitar from the age of about 10 all the way till my dad bought me one and gave it to me for Christmas, you know, and I, I just went crazy. My brother, I got into it is he played with this other, with this guitar player that was phenomenal. And I was like, wow, I want to, I want to do that. I want to do that, you know? And so, you know, I kept bugging my folks. They finally got me you know, a guitar for Christmas. I started playing it and, and I just, I, oh man, I spent hours and hours a day, you know, you have to, with anything, it's like, Just prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> so you got to practice, got to practice, you know. So that, and I still do to this day. I'll I'll do my scales, you know, and I'll I'll do chords, you know. I'll I'll, I'll just you know, you can always get better. Matter of fact, there's another saying Chuck Knox had. He said, when you finally get to the point in your career, you're in football, where you finally mastered everything, you think you've learned it all. It's time for you to retire. <laughs> because you never stop learning. You never start, you stop improving. You know, you can always get better. And so, you know, and I'm not the best guitar player in the world, you know, I just, but I, but I can hold my own, you know, and I have fun. And, 
you know, we, uh, me and my wife, we, 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 uh, for a group called Taylor May Jazz for 15 years, you know, and then when, when her COPD got really bad, she couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I love playing the guitar. It's, it's probably the best therapy there is for anybody. Right, Jeff. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being on our podcast. It's my pleasure, man. We'll, we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thanks for listening to our interview with Jeff Nixon. But this episode isn't finished. For our Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we actually have two topics to discuss today based on our interview with Jeff Nixon. We'll talk about the Bermuda Triangle defense, but first we'll discuss the 20-game winning streak that the Miami Dolphins had over the Buffalo Bills in the 1970s. The streak started October 18, 1970 in Don Shula's first season with the Dolphins and continued all throughout the 1970s. Now fast forward to the opening game of the 1980 season on September 7th. The game was in Buffalo and heading into the fourth quarter, the Bills were trailing 7-3. to Neither team made much headway for the majority of the final quarter, but then the tide turned. In the last three minutes and 42 seconds, the Bills scored twice. The first was a touchdown pass from Joe Ferguson to Roosevelt Leakes to give the Bills a 10-7 lead. Shortly thereafter, Joe Cribbs ran across the line for an insurance touchdown and gave the Bills the victory. It was not a pretty game, but the Bills and their fans would take it. As mentioned in the interview, one of the bright spots outside of the victory was the performance of our guest, Jeff Nixon. He intercepted three passes in the game and had a fumble recovery. Over the Dolphins' winning streak, Miami outscored Buffalo 565-299. to The Bills were also shut out three times during the streak. Buffalo went on to win the division that 1980 season, but lost to the San Diego Chargers 20-14 in the divisional playoffs. Now on to the second nugget of the week, the Bermuda Triangle. When Chuck Knox took over the Bills in the late 1970s, he converted to a 3-4 defense where you have three down linemen and four linebackers. In the second round of the 1979 draft, the Bills selected nose tackle Fred Smurlis and linebacker Jim Hazlitt. Already on the squad was linebacker Shane Nelson. These three formed what was lovingly referred to as the Bermuda Triangle because running backs entered but never left. As mentioned earlier, this top-ranked 1980 defense helped propel the Bills to the division title in 1980. That's all that we have for this week. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up-to-date on our episodes. You can find the links on the main page of this podcast. If you like what you've heard, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as to help retired players in need. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the FLA, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.